Hello and welcome to Big Ideas, a podcast from Texas State University. My name is Dan Seed from the School of Journalism and Mass Communication. We have a really fun episode this month as we're talking whiskey. And when you think whiskey, we're thinking usually Tennessee and Kentucky, where 95% of the world's bourbon is produced. And that's a distinction we'll likely get into during today's conversation. And you might also think of Ireland and Scotland, but we're focusing on Texas whiskey. And we're doing so with Steve Eisen, a Texas State, then Southwest Texas State alumnus, and the founder and president of Rebecca Creek Distillery in San Antonio. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, guys, thanks for having me. So, Steve, your journey to founding and owning a distillery is pretty unique as you made the switch from working in insurance to founding Rebecca Creek in 2009. Walk us through how that happened. I'm not from the liquor business at all. I knew really nothing about it. I was an avid consumer, (laughs) not from the business at all, but was working with a family insurance business. My dad started in the early 70s, me and my brother. And I always knew there was something bigger out there for me. Just didn't know what it was. And I had some friends that actually went to Texas State with that were running a big distributorship here in Texas called Republic National. And they were some of the executives. And I always wanted to get in the liquor business, but didn't really know how or what. And so I kind of went to them and asked them, said, hey, I'm uh, thinking about getting in the liquor business. I want to start a liquor distributorship at first and maybe bring on some small brands and, and grow it up. And was trying to recruit one of those guys to help me start it since they know the business. And they quickly taught me out of that. They said, there's a reason why there's only a couple liquor distributors in Texas. It's just too much money and headaches and trucks and employees. What you need to do is start a distillery and you need to make whiskey and make vodka. Hmm. I literally said, what's a distillery? I didn't even really know what it was. And they just kind of laughed, laughed at me. And they go, we need whiskey made in Texas because right now we sell more whiskey in Texas than anywhere in the world. And there is none made here. And there's only one or two other little vodka companies and they have all the business. And so if you're going to do something in the business, we need you to make vodka and whiskey and you need to have a really good chance being vocal. I'm like, great. I said, I don't know anything about that. I said, I'm not a chemist. I'm not a brewmeister. I'm just a salesman, but that's what you need. I'm going to go find it. So it was kind of given their direction of what they needed. So I went out in the marketplace, did the research, uh, went to classes, distilling classes around the country and started putting together a plan to build a distillery. And so I met a master distiller at one of the classes I was at in California, a guy named Eric Watson. There's only 150 master distillers in the world. And I talked to him into coming down and helped me build it and write the business plan and, and help me put it together. And so he literally lived here for about a year. I put him up in an apartment down the street. And I said, teach me everything you know. Let's start the business plan. And then he helped me pick out the equipment, work with the contractors and build it. And then ultimately teach us how to distill. So it was kind of tricky to have a fire hose, me not being in the business. And I had to go raise money for this because it's very capital intensive. And I raised money in it literally like in a crash in 2009, 2010. There wasn't much going on as far as new capital investment. So I was lucky enough to put together a team of some investors and we funded the project and we built the first legal distillery in the South since Prohibition. Wow. And so that being said, here in San Antonio, we, we built it and we started make, mainly making vodka, which we called Enchanted Rock Vodka, because vodka, I don't have to age 
I can make it pretty fast and put in a bottle and sell it to help with the cash flow. But the project was always about the whiskey. I started making whiskey immediately and putting it back in the barrel. But whiskey is a very terrible business model because you pay all your cost up front, all your materials, your labor. You pay taxes on it and you ain't sold it. You just sit there and watch it age in a, in a barrel and makes you want to cry every day. It's, God, I could sell this right now. So vodka kind of sustained the business, paid the bills, more weight on the whiskey. And the whiskey came about three years later, and that was Rebecca Creek Whiskey. And since then, we have three brands now, Enchanted Rock Vodka, Rebecca Creek Whiskey, and Texas Ranger Whiskey. Three different, you know, separate babies. So, so you talked about when you first got into this, that it was like drinking out of a fire hose, somebody that's a novice coming into this from the production side. Walk us through some of the challenges and, and maybe talk a little bit. I, I did read an article about your copper distilling pot that you purchased and kind of, you know, the lengths that you went to get that and the fact that there was kind of a, an incident with it or, or an accident with it when you were distilling it or, or putting it in. Give us a sense of those challenges that you faced. Yeah. So when you open the distillery, you can't just go and say, hey, I need some distiller equipment. You can't go down the street to Home Depot and buy that stuff. It's all built. Most of it's built overseas. And so I was referred to this consultant that was called Carl, Carl Manufacturing. And, and they, they're like a 150-year-old company that makes stills. And my distiller recommended them. And so they came over, inspected out, and they literally built the biggest still for North America that they've ever built. It's a thousand uh, liter still. That's wow. a copper pot still and column still that I can make vodka, whiskey, gin, rum, with anything with this still. But it takes about six months to make. And it's all by hand, copper. And they ship it over here. Yeah, we were basically waiting on the distill to get here. And they came here. And I was almost out of money. And I couldn't afford a rigger. A rigger is like a crane that helps lift things up and put it down. So we thought we could do it off a forklift. We pulled it out of the 18-wheeler and we literally dropped and bounced about three times the bulk of the still. And I thought I broke it. And I was literally on the ground crying. Oh, my God, we're never going to do it. Because you, you wait six months to get sure. somewhere and you break it. But uh, those things are built like to last, and it is a beast. I've had zero problems with that still. The German engineers are amazing. And so that being said, it's got a big old whiskey dent in the back of it. And I always tell people on the tour about the, the whiskey dent and how it came about. But it's kind of a joke, you know. You've had a couple of whiskeys and you dump into things. <laughs> yeah, it's a whiskey dent. Now looking back on it, it's a great story. But like you said, in that moment, you've invested everything in here that you said that you, you got down on the ground and cried. What's going through your mind as your baby is coming in and you're going to be able to start doing this and oh no, it falls. Yeah, it's just, just a real quick heartbreak. But once we started putting it together and it was more, nothing mechanically got broken on it. It was just more cosmetic. Then I started feeling better. <laughs> so 2009, you, you get this operation ramped up. But since then, in the decade plus, your distillery has grown to the point where your, your whiskey has moved beyond just Texas. It's sold in other states and was an official product of Super Bowl 51 in Houston. You guys were the official drink of the Academy Awards back in 2018. Walk us through how you got from that guy who doesn't know anything about whiskey or distilling in 2009-ish to this point where you're now in the green room at the Oscars three years ago? It was just a lot of hard work and luck and marketing. You know, we 
the problem was when we raised the money to build this, I would spend it all on the equipment. I didn't really have any money left to market. And so I had to do what we call as redneck marketing, where we go and anywhere we could go and set up shop, like at Texas State Tailgates, we'd set up shop and just sample people and tell the story over and over and over and just touch thousands of people all over. That's kind of what we did. And we, it's funny because we took an old RV, one of my partners had 42 foot bus and we wrapped it and we had all our logos all over it. And we literally took that all over Texas and started rolling it out. And we would just set up camp and live in that thing for, we couldn't afford hotel rooms. So we just live in there while we marketed it. And we'd just set up a little tent outside and big events. We'd just set up and start slinging it and uh, just kind of built it by grassroots and slowly but surely started getting some notoriety. And I mean, since then we've grown to one of the largest craft distilleries in the country. We're probably in the top 5%. We'll do over a hundred thousand cases uh, next year. And so uh, we're in 18 States. This is the craft movement. We were just kind of ahead of the craft movement. Uh, when I first started, I went to the first distilling conference and there's literally maybe 20 vendors there and maybe a hundred people there, attendees. And I went to one two years ago in Denver and there's literally 300 vendors and 2,500 attendees. So things have gotten a lot bigger with the craft explosion. So we were kind of at the front of that wave. You know, a lot of those folks have gone to business, you know, unfortunately, especially because of COVID. That being said, we just kind of, were, it was all about timing. And we just kind of hit the, hit the market by storm and had a great story to tell. And we built the distillery to house people. I, I wanted the masses to come through the people, to come through the distillery. And so last year we had about 50,000 tourists that came through and got to tour our distillery and taste our products. And, you know, we set up like a venue here where it's like a winery. We have live music here four days a week. We have big corporate events. We have big concerts, music concerts. So uh, all those things kind of come into play to help kind of grow the brand where people experience it. And then they go back to Dallas or Houston or anywhere in the country and say, hey, I have this problem. Do you have it? And start asking for it. So it just kind of evolves. You kind of push. It's like a push a big boulder uphill. You push, push, push. And finally, you get some momentum. And you just kind of gross off each other, you know. And I want to get back to a little later about what you talked about creating this venue and creating this this opportunity for people to come in at the distillery and, and do all these events and tour and whatnot. But when you look at this explosion of the popularity of whiskey, and as you said, you're at the forefront of that craft movement. Why do you think that's happened as we've seen it in the last 10 years? I mean, I can remember, you know, you go into a liquor store and it was Jim Beam and Jack Daniels and the big boys. And now you go in and there's, there's whiskey from Texas and around the country in these stores. What was the impetus for that? What, what caused that to happen? Well, I think it, it kind of, just like the beer movement, the craft beer movement, you had some people pivot and start making craft beer and that kind of blew up in popularity and the distillery business, you know, it, there's a lot of distilleries out there making amazing products and stuff. And the thing about it is, it's a, you know, 80% of distilleries kind of do most of the business at their own place, like a winery, you know, like their own tasting room. And that's kind right. of the revenue. Some are lucky enough to get, get distributed and have, have the, uh, the wherewithal to get it out there and market and expand. And so there's kind of two paths to it, but it just was the timing and people wanted, wanted something different. Then, you know, they got tired of the European stuff, especially on the vodka, you know, it's like, why not buy something, you know, local. And then also the whiskeys, you know, it's everything came from Kentucky, Tennessee, but 
I mean, people are making great whiskey all over the country now, California, Washington, Oregon. People just want the change and people like to support the little guy. That being said, craft's got a big, big space. And the, uh, the, the big boys call us the ankle biters because we're, we're kind of biting at the ankles, mm -hmm. but we're taking big chunks now. And so it's really, I love to see it just with all the, all the new brands, new craft brands emerging and, and making a stance around the country, you know. Now I want to get into the actual product, the, the drink, the whiskey, the, the vodka, and, and talk about that a little bit. And I'll ask these questions as somebody who likes whiskey, but inside baseball here, you're involved in the business. You understand this. You've cultivated this brand. You've cultivated your whiskey. So I'm hoping that maybe you could shed some light on some of these questions I have that likely some of our viewers have. So when we talk about Texas whiskey, is there a distinction, maybe a palate or flavor of the whiskey versus what we get from Tennessee versus what we get from Kentucky in the same way that we see with wines from different regions have a different kind of flavor profile? When people are making bourbon, a lot of times it's out of the same mash bill and stuff. And, you know, it depends, you know, where you age it. But like with Texas whiskey, it's kind of emerged. There's some bourbons out there. There's some single malts out there a lot of blends out there. And so there's all different types that are kind of hitting the market. What we had to do is different projects. You know, one is to, we wanted a blended whiskey. So I wanted a profile that's going to pull the bourbon drinkers and also the Canadian drinkers of whiskey drinkers onto my product. So Rebecca Creek is kind of a hybrid in between a bourbon and a Canadian. It's bourbon based. It's a bourbon blend, mm -hmm. but profile it's something kind of in between that we did that on purpose to try to get both of those folks coming on and trying our stuff it, it's worked well because there's so many in texas people like sweet whiskey crown royal sells a lot of whiskey here and so we want to kind of play off that you know with texas like in sweet you know they like sweet whiskey and stuff so and that being said with rebecca creek like i said it's right in the middle but it's more of a bourbon style the more the bourbon drinkers enjoy it. And then I also created Texas Ranger whiskey, which is a completely different profile. It's sweeter whiskey, like a Canadian, tastes like a Canadian, a lot of vanilla, caramel, a lot of nuts in it. It's got some Rebecca in it, but it's priced less than Rebecca Creek and it's hitting a chord with the millennials. So mm. that's kind of their go-to with shots and just enjoying it uh, on the rocks. And then we also have flavors with Texas Ranger. So flavors are the new thing with whiskey, which you would never think 10 years ago, but people like flavored whiskey now. So we made, sure. a, coconut, we made a coconut pecan, peach, peanut butter cup. I would have never dreamed of making that no. stuff 10 years ago, no. but it's amazing how the popularity of those, just kind of like fireball has right. come about and it, you shoot it and you do different things with it and same concept and it's hitting a chord with the, with the younger folks. So you brought up um, just a minute ago in your discussion about, about the profile of your whiskey and you brought up bourbon, right? So talk about a little bit or explain to our audience the difference between bourbon and whiskey, the label, the, the name difference. What makes it a bourbon? What makes something a whiskey? Well, just by law to make bourbon, it's got to be 51% corn. <laughs> it's got to be aged in a new oak barrel few years uh, that's that's the official law that you had to call it a bourbon but you can make whiskey with different mash bills like ours is 22 percent rye 
ours is number two yellow corn, ours is malted barley in our mm -hmm. Rebecca Creek. So it's just the way, uh, different ways to make it. I mean, you can do a weak whiskey, you can do Canadian style whiskey, so single malt whiskey. So there's all different types of whiskeys out there that people are like, oh, what's the difference? But not all bourbons are whiskey. I mean, it's, they're distinct, they're all whiskeys, but just the way the, the ingredients and how they age it kind of makes it unique in its own right. Let's go into, without giving anything away, the process, right? As you mentioned at the beginning, you're kind of sitting on this product, waiting for it to develop, waiting for it to age. Walk us through that. You know, we, we buy it in the store and it's there on the shelf, but behind the scenes, what are you doing? What is that process like for you? When we first started, we came out with two different whiskeys. So making two different whiskeys. One, we're making our bourbon, okay? It's a rye-based bourbon but that takes longer to age and, and make. And then uh, we also started making single malt. So we made single malt whiskey with five different malted barleys. And we aged that for four and a half years and then we released it. So that was just a unique start making it right away. To be honest, how we got in the whiskey businesses, I mean, basically we, we had to source whiskey at first. We had to buy whiskey from some of the big distillers and sit on those barrels and then blend that with our new make whiskey. Mm. And that's kind of how we got started uh, sourcing that. We're, we're, we're transparent about it. You know, we started making whiskey from day one, aging right. it. But to get out there in the market, you know, that's why I came with a blend first. And with the blend, I didn't have to age everything and, and have everything from scratch. I could blend it, you know, with the whiskey we make along with the whiskey I bought with the same mash bill. And so that's the thing about it is, and then so surely as the years went by, I was able to put back more barrels and more barrels and, and then, you know, use your own stuff, but that's kind of how right. we got started. So what is that like? I mean, I'm not a super patient person, so I can't imagine what it would be like to create a product, put it in barrels, let it sit for years and then take it out years later and sell. What is that moment like when you put it away and then, four years later, five years later, however long later, now it's time to sell it. Walk us through that. What is that experience like for you? Well, first of all, with, it's, it was kind of a new experiment because Texas has never had any experience of aging whiskey. And so we found out that Texas is a great state to age whiskey in because it has hot days and cold nights. So you're constantly contrasting in the barrel. We didn't know the proof too, what the proof would be. We didn't know if it would evaporate. It was kind of the unknown. And these were un air conditioning warehouses. I was pleasant surprised. It, it really kept its proof and didn't evaporate like I thought it would. It would. And we were tasting it as we went along, so we kind of knew. But you can't switch gears. And once you put that in the barrel, you're stuck right. with it. Yeah. So it's, but if you stick to the same mash bill, the same formula, the same you know, everything consistently, then you're going to get most of the time, it's going to be right on. Be a little variance here and there, but not much. When Steve Eisen walks into a bar or restaurant, clearly he's going to order Rebecca Creek, right? But what's, what kind of whiskey are you partial to personally? I like, and the reason I like the, the rye based whiskey, because it's got more spice to it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what our profile is. It's got a little more spice to it. So that's just my personal preference is you so, know, the rock-based whiskeys just because sure. of the spice. Sure. And so everybody has their own their, their own preference. And as you mentioned, you have people coming in 
to the distillery, you're doing tours, tastings. If somebody's new to whiskey, how do you recommend them to kind of discover their particular palate or their particular favor? Like, you know, is there a way that you kind of guide them through the process of discovering different kinds of whiskeys, different flavors? Well, that's, that's one of the good things is because like Rebecca Creek, it's a great introduction whiskey. Women are drinking more whiskey than ever before. And so I want something that, that they, they can drink it and not have that whiskey face. Like, ooh, Rebecca Creek is a very good introduction whiskey. Now, since then, we've come out with some small batch bourbons that's higher proof. That's mm-hmm. more, hit, you know, stronger. People can gear up to that. But mm-hmm. that's one of the, the beauties of Rebecca Creek, just because of its profile and its palate and softness, that it can people can start drinking right away and enjoy it and you know, not have to have an acquired taste like a scotch or whatever. They can kind of jump in it quickly. If they want to go stronger and bolder, they can. Uh, and we have that too. Or they could just, you know, just enjoy it. So it just kind of depends. But it's a great intro whiskey, I would say. So you mentioned women and the growing popularity of whiskey among women. When women come to your distillery, when you go to these conferences to talk with other folks, why is that? Why is whiskey growing in popularity among women? What are they telling you? Well, I just think that vodka is still a great category and growing category. And that's what most women drink. But people get bored and they want to experiment. And I think women are becoming more and more, uh, as I see it around the country, more and more whiskey girls, whiskey ladies, you know, that like, like bourbon, like whiskeys, and uh, are very educated about it and love to talk about it. And that's the thing, too. The name of our whiskey, we're the only whiskey with a woman's name in the world. Oh, interesting. Just by accident. But right. that being said, it just it gives more, um, I think, a flexibility for women to kind of jump in, at least our whiskey. But it's good to see that the women are taken to that because it's just helping the category. So let's shift gears a little bit here and get into what you guys have done starting in the spring when the pandemic first came to the United States. I was reading that throughout the life of the distillery that you guys have donated more than a million dollars or near a million dollars to charitable causes. And then last spring, you shifted production from your spirits to hand sanitizer in response to the COVID pandemic, giving the hand sanitizer to first responders across the state. Why was that important for you to do? One thing is, you know, we had to shut down our tasting room, you know, just like everybody else. And uh, all of a sudden, I mean, what literally happened overnight is, I mean, the sanitizer was gone. You couldn't buy it anywhere. And then there were some distilleries that were popping up doing it. And they they didn't even have FDA approval or anything. They were just making it Mm -hmm. and helping people out. The more I thought about it, I said, why can't we do it? I said, we make ethanol alcohol every day. I, I store it. I keep it. Right. So I think I could easily do it. So I had, I had to do some research to get into it. And then I guess the craze hit. I mean, literally, the FDA saw that distillers were helping out, and they gave like immediate temporary approval to get in the business, which is usually takes years. Right, sure. And so it allowed us to do it. And so we just said, all right, let's jump in it, invested in it, bought the right equipment. But I literally had probably 600 to 1,000 calls in that first big wave. Wow. That people were desperate. And they, I mean, because it was out everywhere. First responders, hospitals, counties, everywhere. And so we said, so you know what? We're going to make all we can make right now. And let's just give it away uh, to first responders. So we literally gave it away. I mean, the first month, everything we made, we donated 
gave it to people from not only like this to run here, but the city of Austin, the city of Houston, the city of, of Dallas, Fort Worth, Arlington, Arkansas. I mean, just like they were sending trucks down from all over and we were just loading them up. You know, that being said, too, after we donated the majority of it, we were able to sell some, too. So it was funny because all those people that I employed, tour guides, promotional girls, bartenders at the distillery, it's probably about 20 of them that I had to lay off because we were shut down. Sure. Our production continued, but not the, not the tasting room part. So I was able to rehire them like literally in two weeks, hire them all oh, back wow. and put them to work full time. And so we were just cranking it out. And so then we were able to sell, sell it too, you know, until the demand stopped. And, but we were able to recoup those dollars that we lost from the, um, our taste room being shut down, you know? So anyways, just, it was a, it was a timing thing. And we were able to pull it off. You know, now we just give that to our, our clients that, that need it. Like the restaurant and bars are trying to get reopened. So we just donate to them now. It's reminiscent of not just you guys, all the companies that did it from Prohibition. When Prohibition hit, the alcohol manufacturers had to shift business, right? And they started creating other products using what they had on hand in order to, to help stay afloat. Clearly that helped you guys, but it also went to some really good causes. So thank you for doing that, not only for our first responders and hospitals and people out there, but for your employees to not leave them twisting in the wind, really. It's such a tough time for the service industry. Yeah, we were able to help Texas State out a lot, too. They called Desperate, too. They were completely out. And so they sent a huge truck down here. We just said, you can take all you want. And so I loaded them all up. It really helped them. So I was, I was glad to help do that, you know, to give back a little bit. Always good to help back the, uh, the old alma mater any way that oh, you yeah. can, especially in a time like this. So now that we're, I don't want to say past it, because we're not past it, but now that we're a year on or almost a year on from the start of the pandemic here, how have you guys adjusted, right? You talk about the venue that you have and all these tours and whatnot. What, where are you guys now in terms of what you're doing in terms of those kind of operations? How are things different? What can people expect if, if they're able to come out? So we're just at the distillery. We've been open again for about four weeks now. And so we're trying to get back to normal provide live music four days a week out here and we do there's a dog park there's food trucks and so as the weather gets better we're opening back up people are so bored there's nothing to do you know so the numbers are starting to creep up you know we usually do about 1500 events a year wow. uh, not only texas but around the country mm-hmm. and activations events sponsorships like we sponsor texas rangers baseball Santos spurs tailgates Texas state University of Texas, AM, and all that got canceled. So it was kind of a coup because people were stuck at their house and people were buying for their pantry. And so our sales have, have done very, very well this year without having to do any of those events. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's our, I never thought it would be there, but it's kind of helped, you know, us keep more profitable as well. You know, it's not going to last forever, but in the meantime, we just dumped it back into our own resources and social media and things like that to help promote the brands. Well, glad to hear that you guys are, are back open in regard to the activity at the distillery for the public. So lastly, Steve, give our listeners some information. Where exactly is the distillery located? What do they need to know if they want to visit? Things that are coming up maybe later in the spring that you have planned or, or throughout the summer? Yeah, so it's just real easy. You just go to our website, RebeccaCreekDistillery.com. 
we have different Facebook pages for Enchanted Rock Vodka, Texas Ranger Whiskey, Rebecca Creek Whiskey, but mainly the, the Rebecca Creek Distillery Facebook page has all the events that we do here coming up, you know, the artists that, that are playing here. And so we're just trying to get back open again where people will book, book corporate events. I had some fundraisers out here with a couple hundred people, you know, we're all outdoors, so people are spread out. It's very safe. But just encourage people that they're not going to be confined to inside a place. It's like wide open on two and a half acres. I would welcome folks to start showing up again, you know, like, like we used to. Well, let's hope that we can. Let's hope people do here in 2021 for all of us and for you guys as well. Steve, anything else that you'd like to add or, or say? Yeah, I, I got a lot of my experience, life experience when I was at Texas State. It just, I was in a fraternity. I was president of my fraternity when I was there. I was at I was a teak. I was on the uh, advisory council. And so a lot of the leadership skills I learned all came from Texas State. And so a lot of my connections, I mean, I never would have started the business without those connections. And I just give kudos to, to the school. And I'm lucky enough to be um, a board member of the, of the foundation right now. And then uh, my daughter is going to go there in the fall. So I'm real excited about that. Congratulations. So, Bobcat Nation. Uh, I'm just so glad to to uh, have her go there and her experience what I did. And I attribute a lot of the success that I've had just through my network of, of folks were fellow Bobcats. It's been an amazing ride, the Bobcats. Well, thank you, Steve. Steve Eisen from Rebecca Creek Distillery. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. And thank you all in the audience for listening. This marks one year since we started this podcast, since we started airing episodes. And we want to thank all of you that have tuned in, no matter how you're tuning in. And we hope that you've enjoyed the interviews and subjects that we've had. And we hope to continue for many more years with this, and especially this year, bringing you some more informational and informative podcasts and guests and subjects from the Texas State University community here on Big Ideas. We will be back with you next month Thanks again for joining us. Big Ideas TXST is a presentation of Texas State University and the Division of University Advancement. Subscribe to experience more innovative, thought-provoking content. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a starred review, five if possible. The views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily represent those of the university. Big Ideas is hosted by Daniel Seed, Produced by Jamie Bloschke, with technical assistance provided by Manuel Garcia. Strategic consultant is Kelly Raz.